Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. Hello and welcome to Asia Tech Podcast. My name is Graham Brown. Today we're going to talk to Matt Roberts, who is the Global Research Director at Formula One. We're going to talk about sport, live sport, esports, because we live in exciting times. There's a lot of change out there. We're going to touch on big data, fan data, and turning that data into stories. Matt, welcome to the show. Good morning. Great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you here. I mean, such a high-profile brand that you are working with now, but you, you've had a a career that expands many esteemed household names, um, just to throw a few out there. A list including, but not limited to, News International, Mirror Group, Eurosport, Disney, ESPN, BT Sports, Sky Sports, obviously Formula One now. Um, you should know a few things about sport and data, but maybe we can, um, before we get there, one, you know, I'm curious, Matt, and I'm curious about how a guy who started out in languages, I think that was your degree at yeah, university. How did you get into German, this space? Yeah. What, what, is there, a, in Steve Jobs style, do you look back and said, well, it was all part of the master plan? Yeah, I don't really, it's, it's a funny one, actually, because I did, I did French and German at uni and uh, with European uh, studies, which Back in those days, it was quite boring, but given the political situation at the moment, it would be pretty quite fascinating mm. to be back in <laughs> no. that, that world again. Um, but um, yeah, I did French and German. I, I kind of harbored ambitions to probably go down the kind of translation interpreter route. And then I did a module on translation and interpreting as part of my degree. And it was uh, translation was pretty it's quite a kind of a, a, a boring affair. You're kind of st mm. stuck by yourself trying to translate documents all day long and, and interpreting was just really difficult. You know, you had to have amazing language skills and be able to listen and, and, and talk at the same time in, in two different languages. So it was a it was a bit of a tough one. So I kind of changed my path a bit and, and I was kind of looking more along the kind of consultancy side. So I remember when I graduated, I applied for a number of um, graduate schemes for, kind of, you know, some of the bigger kind of consultancies out there. Mm. Um and um, basically, I sort of got rejected from the big boys and I saw an opportunity at Mill Brown on kind of more on the sort of brand research consultancy. Um, and to be honest, I applied for it. I got the job. I didn't really know what I was applying for, what I was going to be doing. So I kind of I sort of fell into the world of research and many of my colleagues that I speak to. Um, yeah, who I've worked with over the last 15 to 20 years, they, they're kind of the same. They sort of just fell into it. Mm. <laughs> it's not it's not something they knew they were going to end up for in. It. it opted you in a way. Yeah, it kind of found me. And then um, you know, I, I worked on the agency side for a while before mm. going um, onto the client side. Onto, you know, I, was, I worked at, uh, in radio at Classic FM and Capital Radio for a while and then moved into the sun and the mirror before coming into the world of sport. And yeah, I'm, I'm much more preferred. I much preferred the world on the client side a lot more than the agency side. I think you, I felt a bit more kind of stifled on the agency side that there was a, a very defined progression that mm. you know I was only allowed to do a certain amount in my first year, a bit more in my second year. Um, whereas yeah, you go client side and you're kind of thrown into the bear pit a bit in terms of you, you often the on the media owner side your teams are quite small and you you have a quite a big remit. Uh, you deal with lots of stakeholders and you understand the kind of bigger picture of what happens within businesses. While sometimes mm. at an agency, you can be a bit kind of blinkered in terms of you, you think that research is the center of the world. But when you go client side, you realize that it's just it's one cog in a, in a yeah, huge yeah. wheel. Yeah, it's part um, of the pitch. And that probably is about it in many cases sometimes, isn't it? But it, now, exactly. now you, you sort of cross exactly. many aspects 
of the business, everything touching the fans, communicating with sponsors and feeding back yeah. to every, all the stakeholders, right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, my stakeholder list at F1 ranges from um, you know, the marketing team, look at, you know, measuring kind of the, the impact of the work that they're doing on the brand, sponsorship team trying to help them, you know, give them sort of sales collateral so they can go out and, and, and sell F1 to, to global partners, digital team trying to help them improve the digital products, you know, usability testing, pricing a packet. Uh, you know, pricing and product testing. Um, we do work around the TV feed. How can we improve the TV feeds? We're doing kind of biometric research, you know, measuring um, engagement of mm. our content via galvanic skin response technologies. Um, yeah, so our stakeholders is, is pretty broad. We've also got people like um, F1 teams. So we deal quite close, work quite closely with some of the teams. So people like um, Williams and McLaren um, and, and the guys I work pretty closely with. And then we've got also F1 race promoters as well. Um, and sorry, some dogs just kind of coming past the window. But, um, <laughs> and um, F1 race promoters, uh, the guys who organize the races, um, we work quite closely with them in terms of trying to show that, um, you know, it's a, uh, the economic impact of hosting the race. Um, so, yeah, my, my job is pretty varied from commercial to brand to mm. Um, usability testing to you know using new technologies and, and everything so you know in that pivotal role where you're constantly communicating to many many different stakeholders is it is it a bit is it a stretch to say it's a bit like translation you know going way back to that where you're, you're taking information and you're trying to make sense of it to other people you are telling a story about you know whether it's <coughs> taking gsr data or you know yep. the the fan data by rfid or whatever yep. it is or, or feedback when you do a reddit ama and we'll talk about these things in a minute and then feeding that back to a sponsor or to a team or whoever it might be it's a bit yep. like you, you're taking information from one world and giving it to another, aren't you, where they don't naturally yeah. talk to each other? Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, I think there's a, a few things in that. I think a lot of kind of researchers go down the kind of very heavy methodolo methodological route where they're very into the study and the, the intricacies of the study, but they, they probably do the communication of it not as well. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I guess my mantra has always been that you know, it's actually – the, the study part is, you know, 20, 30 percent, but the actually the important bit is the communication and make sure that the work gets used. Because I think mm. there's a lot of market research out there that sits in the coffers of these big businesses that no one people have looked at and gone, as I said, that's that's interesting. But they've not acted or, 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 or made any decision or, or changed on it. So we, um, you know, my team spend a lot of our time roadshowing the work that we do. We. Um, we go around all the teams, um, the not the F1 teams, but the internal teams within F1. So, you know, like the TV team, the, the brand team, and, and, and share with them the research we're doing. We give them recommendations. Um, we build them dashboards so that they can access the data themselves. We um, we have newsletters that go out internally to staff to sort of share what the latest insight is. We do monthly insight sessions, so drop-in sessions that people can sort of drop by and, and listen to the latest insights. So I'd say a lot of our work is very much that kind of communication and telling mm. the story and, and the recommendation behind the data. And I think a lot of people um, in our industry pretty don't necessarily do that side as well as, as other people. I think um, certainly in my experience of working with you know, big companies there's a lot of teams who kind of they, they they get an agency and they do a 50 slide debrief and then they go right project is over for another three months but 
that that's not really the case. I think you, you should always be thinking about the next way of kind of communicating that work to to your key stakeholders yeah. and, and telling that story of the data. Yeah, telling the story of the data is a challenge, isn't it? And I, I want to dive a little bit into this as as the conversation goes on. Is that, <coughs> like you say, I mean, my world where I was selling research to telecoms, whether it's Nokia, Vodafone, or even in the day, back in the day, MTV, who would be buying this research about young people, is you could go in and sell that data and tell them that's the 20, 30% that you're talking about, that here's the research, here's the data, here's the numbers. And then people would silo this information. And then, you know, Monday morning, the, you know, work, flow continues as normal and you forget about all that kind of information so that was a that was a real challenge is actually there's one thing you know communicating that to an organization or a team there's another thing actually getting them using that on an ongoing basis and one thing i discovered in my journey of 10 years of doing that was like storytelling was probably the most powerful part of that is that the emotional Mm -hmm. sort of connection with the data you know here's data but here's actually that data which is manifested as a fan. Let's talk about this fan and what she did mm-hmm. when she, you know, entered the stadium and, you know, her yeah. journey and so on. So actually trying to turn that into real actionable stories is the challenge, isn't it? Because yeah. you're, you're having to take a different approach from being a pure researcher. So yeah, maybe we could talk a little bit about that because I know we're going to talk about some of your... Um, you know, some of the, you know, ranging from radio to like fan studies in stadiums as well. I'd be curious to sort of dig a little bit deeper into that. Some of the, the insights yeah, of you've, you've sort of revealed. So maybe we can start, if, if I can start with a scene setting, Matt, and just put that, you know, some data on the table and you let me know where we've sort of come from 12 years in your relationship, sport, media, and so on, that where we are today, there's a few data points. Firstly, that sport, I believe is one of the few categories, content categories where appointment to view is still a major factor in viewing behavior. So that's one. And then then we have this really interesting development where there, you know, there are 2 billion gamers on this planet. So we're talking about now we're bringing in esports. We're bringing in a whole new demographic as well. And that you also have this challenge where our attention, and I'm particularly talking about younger audience younger fans it's becoming increasingly scarce so you know Mm. trying to capture the attention of younger audiences getting harder and harder because you know we live in a world where their attention is gamed there's algorithms to grab their attention so where are we today i mean if you were to go back to when you started out with millwood brown and bacardi and where we are today have you seen a shift can you sort of like condense that into a few minutes yeah it's uh well, the, uh, I mean, uh, before we came on there, we talked a bit about how yeah, the world has changed over those last sort of 15, 16 years since I actually 17 years ago that I started at Millwood Brown in terms of, um, yeah, it was the world was a lot more basic then in terms of the data sets that you had available. Um, you know, we were still doing sort of pen and paper surveys, going out and speaking to people on street corners, you know, and, and now everything has migrated to, to, to online and, 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 uh, you know, online surveys and, uh, you know, complex big data sets. But yeah, I think that that's obviously a big change in terms of we've now got a lot more of the, the kind of actual numbers uh, in terms of data to, to help us understand the world. Whereas back then it was very much all around surveys. And and actually now the, the, the interesting thing is when you look at the data that we have now and the quality of that data versus just looking at pure survey data, um, yeah, claims versus reality is very, very different mm. <laughs> quite often. And uh, yeah, we, we see in China as one example for F1 that we have an inordinate uh, uh, amount of um 
people on surveys saying that they're kind of that they're F1 fans. Like practically the whole of China is an F1 fan if you look yeah. at surveys. But China is a market where people over exaggerate and they uh, and they say that that they they say what they they think you want to hear in surveys so mm. culturally it's a slightly different market so if, if we had reasons to believe that you know, we then this year moved um our chinese f1 um races onto free to air in china so you would think that we'd have you know billions of people tuning in but you know we're, we're barely hitting a million viewers so it just shows that the kind of claim versus reality is is quite different um but uh, yeah, going back to back to your point, I think you know that that data, that richness of data that we get now in terms of actual data and actual behaviour, especially on the kind of digital side, and um, is is really powerful and, and helps us understand the world. I mean, the, your your comment around sport um, not being you know an appointment to view, and we 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 did lots of projects in my days at Sky, mm. trying to understand you know what proportion of of Sky Sports content is viewed. Uh, live at the time versus recorded versus um, you know, how many people are kind of using Sky Go, how many people are uh, using Sky Mobile to watch highlights and clips. And yeah, we found that actually using actual data based on 500,000 UK homes that you know, over 90% of all um, sports content is still watched live. Yeah. And that was using actual data. I mean, if we, we could have asked that in the survey, but people, if I asked you in the survey, when you watch sport, how often do you watch it live? You you would probably say, yeah, all the time, but there might be some occasions where mm. you might watch it delayed or you might watch it recorded. So again, it just shows we've got much more powerful data. I think um, the other point of your question, so I'm sort of rambling slightly, but is the sort of youth point. And I think, you know, esports has been great for us at F1. Mm. Um, yeah, like you say, there are lots and lots of gamers out there, sort of, you know, in the billions. And um, 80% of our esports audience in the series that we launched only last year are, are under 35. And you know, that's phenomenal when you mm. look at TV mm. numbers of you know, how many under 35s do you get to your TV content nowadays? Very little when you're yeah, yeah. You know, at our Sky Sports average of uh, TV viewing in the UK for F1 is like average age of 48, I think. So, yeah, if you think you can get 80% of your viewers who are under 35, that's that's really powerful stuff. It's the way to kind of hit that next generation of 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 fans and of people who might consume your brand in the future. And we we really need to think about that as a as a sport because, mm. uh, like you say, these guys they don't watch two hours of races. They they consume five minutes, three minutes clips on. Uh, on social media and 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 that's their kind of social currency and because of that they feel like they know a lot about sport and there's also you know the this aspect of kind of followers versus people who actually watch um you know because i've got two young kids and a, and a young family i don't have that much time to watch sports but i follow sport I, mm -hmm. you know i'm always on live text commentary seeing what the football scores are but i haven't actually watched a football game this season i don't think but right. i probably would class myself as a fan so i'm more of a follower than a than a, than a watcher so there's so many interesting facets that yeah, are coming yeah, out right. all the work that we're doing these days well you're, you're building these different pen profiles of your your fans they're not like one type of person right so i think that's key and we'll dive into that a little bit i want to talk about esports yeah. um i can't sort of miss the point about asia as well i mean you've mentioned china so maybe we can talk a little bit about that i know you mm. were at you were at rise this year in hong kong right i think you were yeah. speaking there i mean it's a yeah, great event like, casey's yeah. put a great event together and i think it's great to to have sort of input mm. from people like yourselves obviously i'm based here in singapore the singapore night race is you know one of the you know the jewels in the f1 crown i suppose and mm. you, also, you did a uh, was it a fan festival in shanghai this year as well so we did yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah i mean it's where we've i mean put this into context i 
came to Asia in the 90s and I lived in Japan, which really was Asia for most sort of Western <laughs> brands, right? And I remember seeing Manchester United, they came out to play Urawa Reds, sorry, which it was about in the mid-90s, only because the sponsor of Man United back then was Sharp and obviously their Japanese yeah. company, and they <laughs> happened to be Urawa's sponsor as well. But for many years, that sort of tour of Asia was, okay, we're just collecting checks. You know, you yeah. would have Manchester United and Liverpool would do Southeast Asia. They would do Singapore, maybe Malaysia, and they would do Japan. And that was really it because there was such pent-up demand. And I know it was easy money for them. It was the off-season and so on. Things have moved on a little bit there, I think. There's more sort of a engagement with that audience isn't it and we're seeing it with mm. i mean you know even in for example like uci with cycling coming out here to um asia as well that really trying to engage the fans and just yeah. a, a data point i want to throw in it's predicted by 2030 that two-thirds of the world's middle class will be living in asia i mean mm. how does that change things from where we were like, way back in the day where asia was just sort of a bonus yeah i mean that that's that's really interesting i think um if you've read a lot about what kind of my kind of top bosses at F1 say, so Sean Bratches of this world, they, they talk about China being as a, um, and Asia as being a particular, you know, very, very important continent for us in terms of growing the fan base. Um, you know, the F1 fan base has been pretty static or kind of decreasing slightly over the last, um, last number of years, but you've got, you've got these, these two big markets in China and, and the U S where, we're kind of we underperform and there's a real opportunity there um to 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 get people um yeah to, to be interested in the sport and there's a few mm -hmm. things i think that that we've done badly as a sport you, you have things like um we we were always a business run out of london by essentially by brits who who think we could crack china from the uk <laughs> you need boots on the ground you need to be part of that culture you need to be immersed you need to be uh, you need to be over there you can't just have one race one august uh, sorry april then come back the following year and expect that fandom to kind of be maintained so i think you know we need to work much harder especially in in, in china as, as you say i think um, there's a real opportunity there i think there's a there's a there's a thirst for um, pe people are very, you know, all the research we've done, we can see that people are very engaged. We can see that there is a thirst for um, F1 over there. Um, you know, we, we need to look at things like driver development programs to try mm. and encourage the next driver of the future to be from China because look what happened with basketball. You know, their numbers have gone through the roof, having mm. a Chinese star, whereas, you know, there's, there's never been an F1 Chinese driver. So we think something like that would, would, would grow the sport massively in China. Um but going back to your point before about esports, and, and we know that esports is much younger. What we've also found is that looking at the F1 audience in in places like China and the US, where they're less developed, less traditional F1 markets, they are much younger. So you look at an average age in the 30s versus an average age in the 50s for places like the UK and Italy and Germany. So of of a fan, so there's a real opportunity in in China to 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 grow that. You know, to find that next generation of F1 fans, we need to do it the right way. We can't just rely on a two-hour TV feed every second week. Mm. We need to think about esports. We need to think about our, you know, we, we don't have a, a registered and authenticated Weibo account in um, or, or WeChat in China. So, you know, we're massively, you know, we're missing out because China is the market of, you know, Asia generally, I guess, is very heavy on social media compared to, you know, like Europe is much, much bigger. And we're, we're not even on the, the number one platform for, um, for social media in China. So, mm. you know, there's all these aspects that we need to improve as a sport. And, and we definitely see 
Asia as, as that market and that, that untapped market and that opportunity. And you, you know, there's the, we're looking at uh, you know, adding a second race over the next decade within China. You've got the Vietnam Grand Prix starting in yeah. 2020. Um, so yeah, there's all this. You know, China is a, is a really um, and, and and Asia is a real key kind of market for us in terms of growing the sport and. And stop being, we, we need to stop being quite so um, complacent that we think we can have one race somewhere every year and then not do much else in that market. Um, and that's the point of things like the fan festivals in Shanghai to um, try and bring the kind of F1 circus to the streets a bit rather than just these kind of circuits that are out of town so that people who may not think about going to a race can actually experience mm. you know, what's an F1 car look like close up. Um, we've been doing live car runs. Uh, you know, what what does what noise do F1 cars make? What do they smell like? You know, all that kind of stuff. Um, but just bringing the sport to the fans a bit more, rather than making it this exclusive sport behind a kind of a you know expensive ticket at a, a race circuit that even when you go there, you don't necessarily see that much because mm. you're kind of the fans are kind of in the grandstands, but you've got people like uh, you know the celebrities who get to go in the paddock and 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 see the real that that side of F1. So it's all very yeah, there's a lot of opportunity there in that market, I think. So, again, a bit of a long-winded answer. No, it's fantastic. I love it. I think you go deep. Is that? I mean, that's what people want to hear, right, is, you know, that we can get everything else online, right? But I want to hear, like, the real insights. What, what was it like mm. when you went to Shanghai? I, I'm assuming that, you know, you've already gathered a lot of data about China. But to actually yeah. go there, go to Asia, go to a place like Shanghai and actually be part of that, that adds a qualitative aspect. Well, those sort of insights that often find when I'm doing research is that it, you know, you can, you can crunch all the numbers, but there's a yeah. missing fact. When you actually go there and see it, it's like, oh, aha mm. moment, which yeah. I don't know what it is. It's just something clicks when you actually see it happen in the real world and you walk away and think yeah. that all now makes sense. So can you tell us a little bit about your Shanghai experience? Well, actually, I, I didn't actually go to Shanghai. My, my teammate went to yeah. that one. Oh, okay. Um, but went, how, how was I it? Went, yeah. well, and you it, gathered all that data. What did you yeah, gather exactly. from that? So. Yeah, so he went on that one. We we kind of we get to go to my team gets to go to about sort of sort of ten to fifteen races a year, and we kind of divvy it out. Mm. Given it, it it's quite hard work. These these weekends away are pretty um, full on. You know, you go, you fly on the kind of Wednesday or Thursday, and you leave on the Sunday night, um, and you're expected to work full days when you're there. And you know, jet lag is uh, something that you have to <laughs> think doesn't even exist. But yeah, my colleague went to um, Shanghai, and yeah, you know, I, I think. Um, <clears throat> It's spot on what you said in terms of trying to do research from afar, where you or or you know find out how we can improve the sport or how we can improve an event or a festival from afar mm. without actually being there. It's quite hard for us in that you know, in, and and it's it's quite commonplace for for a research teams to often you know we we re, we do lots of work into brands and stuff that we, uh, but we're not actually there in the moment. And and the great thing about us at F1 is we can. You know, uh, within reason, we can travel and actually be at be at these places where we're researching and really understanding and be immersed in what the fans are actually experiencing, and that really helps us in terms of our kind of reporting of of what needs to improve because we've kind of seen it ourselves firsthand and had it um, uh, you know, explained to us through the eyes of a um, of a fan. I think in terms of China, um, from feedback from my colleague, it, it was really interesting that the view that you know, the, the circuit's a little bit out of town in Shanghai. Um, and there was this, this this view that a lot of people in Shanghai just didn't even know that F1 was in town. I mean, that was a really? that was the amazing thing is that you know there was a, a huge race that you know, global race that people around the world were watching, and China was going to be the focal point of 
you know, we reckon about 80 million people every week, every weekend watching F1 race. Yet there was a lot of people, you know, population of, of, of Shanghai who didn't really know that there was mm-hmm. actually a race on. So when when he was out with the with our researchers in the town speaking to people, he was just amazed to see that that lack of knowledge and that lack of awareness. And when they spoke to people about teams and drivers and um, yeah, very few people knew anyone beyond Lewis Hamilton, and um, it was <laughs> yeah. really, it was a real it was a real eye opener because it kind of made us go, well, you know, we we've got a lot of work to do in this market in yeah. terms of raising the profile of this sport. And um, yeah, the, the fan festival was great, but actually, I think the attendance was around sort of thirty, forty thousand. So it wasn't, you know, in a, a huge country with a huge population. That's that's yeah, as that's a drop in the ocean. So uh, I think I think it was a bit of an eye opener. Um, I know that this year we are. Um, we're looking at sending a, a, you know, groups of people over to China to, to kind of be immersed mm. um, and actually um, and, and uh, you know, potentially recruit an agency in China to kind of be on the ground for us to actually be um, you know, uh, to, to speak to, to who knows local sponsors, who know uh, who knows a way that we can obviously grow the sport over there in terms of social media and uh, and so on and so forth. So China is a real key um, interesting market for us. Yeah, I think it starts like you say is by understanding the the fans' perspective mm. is the starting point, stepping into their shoes. And it's tough, isn't it? When you, when you work for a, a prominent global brand, it's easy to be immersed in your own world as is natural, right? Because it mm. obviously the scale of the operations are so large. You have a lot a lot of people knocking at your door, so then to sort of take that and step into the shoes of a, a fan is tough, but to actually step out of your comfort zone and immerse yourself in their world, that's the starting point realizing, or oh, oh, in Shanghai, that you have a city of what, 30 million people, you know, and there's a lot going on in Shanghai right now, as there is at any time. And we may not be the focal point of their lives for that weekend. Exactly, right? yeah. There might be other stuff. But I think it's a challenge, isn't it? When you when you come from the world of the brands, it's very easy to see things from your ivory tower like that and think, oh, hang on a second. How, what do you mean you don't know Formula One? You don't know all these different teams and so on. But that's the reality. And that's the starting point as well. So I think you know that I see as a healthy brand in terms of, you know, building some kind of empathy with the fans, if you like. And you see that with all kind of brands, whether it's Apple or whether it's Starbucks. You know, they have that sort of frontline engagement with their their customers, which you see when you look at the history of brands that have failed, they've always sort of retreated into their ivory tower, haven't they? And they've sort of retreated into their world. But the brands that have stayed relevant, like the Apples and the Starbucks, for example, have always been out there, whether it's for their Mm. retail present or engaged in the communities and so on. Yeah. But that's the that's what's what happened with F1 before, you know. Under not going to obviously knock knock the old regime because they did you know, great great things for the sport. You know, to build the sport up, you know, really it was a bit of a one man show, mm. and he built the sport up to such a, a high level, you know, in terms of the global exposure and 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 the revenue and sponsors and you know he's it, it, when you look at the work that this guy did by himself is incredible. But one thing. That, that was kind of neglected were the fans and, and that's why when when kind of liberty came in there there was a big uproar because fans just were kind of felt like they were hugely neglected no mm. one listened to them uh they still kind of get a bit angry to this day on social media about anything that f1 does um but uh we're, we're trying to change that you know i think one of our, our our key kind of objectives in terms of brand statements is that we put the fans first mm. we you know we're trying to do more things like 
you know, Reddit AMAs. We're trying to do, uh, we've launched a website. Um, my team launched a website called F1 Fan Voice, which is so ultimately it's a research community where mm. we, you know, we can run surveys and polls and there's forums and blogs and all that stuff. But we, you know, it's under the mantra of that we're listening to you and you're, you're helping to input into the sport. And we do a number of surveys a week around whether they be commercial topics, but also we do things around rules and regulations, around DRS, around more kind of technical aspects of the sport. And these guys feel like they're contributing and we mm. feed back to them every month what, what they've told us and what's changed as a result of what they told us. So they feel like there's a, there, there is an outlet for them now to kind of speak to us a bit more. And I think it's baby steps. And I think, you know, we've only got 50,000 people on, on that website and Reddit is only 500,000 people out of 500 million fans globally. But these kind of baby steps still help because it, it kind of, it raises that profile of us and, and people go, actually, they do listen. If you go onto Reddit or you go onto fan voice, people will listen to you and, and, and you can have that direct conversation with someone from Formula One. I think those kind of things do help. Absolutely. That makes a big impact because even though the numbers you might be touching directly might be small in the grand scheme of things, those people are highly influential in their circles, right? And that, yeah. you know, they, they are the broadcasters to 10,000 people each. And, and I suppose the fact mm. as well, Matt, that people do get angry is a good sign. They care. Yeah. You know, if people like, you know, yeah. I don't care. <laughs> You know, I don't, yeah. I don't care about what you have to say or what you do, then exactly, you know, you have a problem. Yeah. The fact that people are not indifferent about what you do mm. means that they have a vested interest emotionally do, in what yeah. you do, which is great. And therefore, the fact that you're willing to come and open up a channel of communication to them is refreshing for them and also great, e even if that channel means venting a few frustrations, <laughs> you know. Which yeah, you, I mean, I think the thing is, the only thing to be careful there, I think, is that these guys are, like you say, they're the ones with the vested interest, but they probably make up, you know, a, a third of our TV viewers every every other weekend, whilst you've got these two thirds of our TV viewers who are casual fans who may dip in for three or four races a year. Um, but they're, they're probably not seeing all the stuff that we're doing because mm. it feels like potentially we're preaching to the converted and giving them that outlet. But you know the next challenge for us is how do we hit these casual fans and get them to engage more with the sport and 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 hear what they want to what you know what will make someone who watches four times a year watch six six times a year or seven times a year mm. so how can we engage with those guys and, and the reality is if we change something so if we introduced a, a you know a short form sprint race for example to try and get kind of more people interested in a kind of a, a shorter race of f1 it's likely to annoy a lot of the kind of avid fans because they're purists and mm. they, they don't want anything changed. But the reality is they're not going to go anywhere because they love the sport so much and they might be annoyed for a while, but they'll, you know, they'll come, it's a bit like a cricket with T20, you know, they'll, yeah, they'll come round and they'll still watch it. But you're, it, we need to be careful that we don't just change things because that's what the avid fans want because mm. we could then alienate casual fans. So it's a real fine balance between those two groups. Yeah, a real challenge, I imagine, but yeah. a, a challenge you've accepted gladly as well. <laughs> I, I think I'm curious as well, just to talk about that in, in terms of understanding fans, is that you've done a lot of, um, you've got a lot of empirical data on, on yeah. fan behavior. And, and even there was one part you, we talked about fans might say X, but actually do Y, like in the, yeah. the China example. But you, you've done a lot of work, interestingly, about you know the fan footfall even in stadiums and i was just reading one of the articles that you published and i'll put the links in the show notes as well if people are interested cool. that um on linkedin you were talking about the fan experience in stadium mm. and I, I guess the challenge now 
Matt, is that when you started out, it was very simple. You did your your clipboard surveys, and yeah. <laughs> you had just your, your sheets of paper, and that was it. But now you're collecting these huge, big data sets, and even stuff like, for example, now you you have data points like the majority of attendees enter via two to three gates. You know, yeah, you, yeah. you must be overwhelmed with data. How how do you take that information and turn it into a story? Because you need, you know, if that's an actionable insight, how do you you work with all the stakeholders and something like that? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's yeah, as you say, it's it's great this kind of work. And you know, back in the day, if you you'd get a sample of you know 200 or 300 and you go well that's a robust sample but obviously right. for our work we're doing it at races now we're getting you know at silverstone we had a sample of 235,000 devices that we're able to 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 see how they move around the circuit and which parts of the circuit that they're consuming so we you know the, the sample that we get now via these data sets is is is, is much much bigger um but yeah as you say i think um we get so much data. We, we work closely with our agencies who, you know, we, we, we work for a company called Mesh who, who help us. Um, they, they deploy the sensors for us at races so we can see um, exactly how people are moving around. If your Wi-Fi is turned on your phone, you will be picked up mm. um, and we will know, we won't know anything about you. I won't know, you know, won't know if you're a man or a woman or your age or anything. So it's very protected data. So, you know, it, it, it's within the GDPR rules. Um, we just know that you are a person walking around. If you've got two phones and they're showing exactly the same behavior, one will be kind of removed under the quality control sort of aspect. Um, so we, we've got this data of how all these people are moving around race circuits. Um, but like, as you say, I mean, it's reams and reams and pages and pages of, mm. of data. So we work closely with Mesh to kind of put it into kind of a format which helps us to kind of glean the sort of stories. So we often start with those bigger kind of numbers you know and what's the footfall number what gates are people coming in uh, how many people went to the fan zone and then we can start looking deeper and go well that's interesting that the fan zone attendance was only 40 percent, but at the last race it was 30 percent. so you know where um you know where are those extra what why why are we getting more people at this race than the mm. last race so we can start looking at locations uh we can start looking at you know did both races have the same activations so did we have a pit stop challenge where people can do their own pit stop at that race and that race? And if we did, what was the engagement level of those activations? So the story starts kind of, we keep we keep adding to the story uh, until we you know, we kind of answer those key questions. And I guess our key questions are really, for us as a commercial rights holder, the, the parts we can we um, we mainly can impact is the fan zone because that's that we manage that we manage all the merchandise area because obviously we sell merchandise. Um, so we, we really look at kind of where are we kind of putting our merchandise stands in the right place so that we can maximize those merchandise sales. Is the fan zone in the right place? And we know that if you go to a race and you go to a fan zone, you can do your own pit stop and you can um, wear your own driver helmet or whatever. And that all the kind of opportunities to get closer to what it's like to be involved in the sport. Uh, we know that those people who do that, they come out of the experience and they had a, a better time. Uh, and they had um, they they thought it was better value for money than someone who didn't do that, so they're then more likely to return. Mm. So we can start thinking about where should we put these things to kind of to 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 increase engagement. Um, and then we work closely with our race promoters and say, actually, this gate here, you're underserving in terms of food and drink. There's no food and drink there, and you've got you know three hundred thousand people over the weekend coming in through that gate, and you haven't got a burger stand. So you should think about an opportunity there to to you know, maximise food and drink in this area as well. So we we build up all these stories and pictures and then we 
we kind of condense it down to like a 20 slide deck with the key questions you know is merchandise in the right place is food and drink in the right place is the fan zone in the right place and we can kind of answer those questions based on all the data sets that we've we've acquired so it's a bit of a long process and it probably takes about you know six weeks after the race finishes before we get to a position where we're happy with the kind of data and the story that we've got from that race but then we've got the added challenge in, in f1 that people move so quickly and they're six weeks later they're thinking about the three races down the line so it's that that's the next challenge is how do we get them to think back and go well we can use these learnings for future races for the rest of the season so yeah it's it's a it's an interesting uh, yeah absolutely uh, it's fascinating because when, when i hear you talk Matt, I, i'm sort of reminded of um it, it sounds to it, in the same way that alibaba for example would approach retail in china you know mm. a similar approach which is use the data to drive the decisions and a lot of retail in the same way you're, you're, you're creating experience in the, the offline world, aren't you? And you mm-hmm. using digital tools to track that. Yeah, and exactly, a, yeah. a, a lot of that has been created through assumptions for year and year, years and years. And some of it is, you know, like lessons learned. And a lot of it is just a habit right you know mm. why is this here or why is that there and, and a lot of it's bs it takes the bs yeah. out of the decision making mm. in the same way if you go back to internet marketing mindset you know if you change something on a web page thinking oh that will get more engagement and then realize that actually drove engagement down you're thinking well i was proven wrong and you, you can apply yeah. those kind of that mindset which is mm. really really a shift isn't it from that sort of gut instinct about how things should yeah. be done in terms of like Definitely, i suppose yeah. if you're if you're building a stadium and the experience uh, people haven't really sort of gone into that in the fine kind of detail that you're doing at that kind of level but we're starting to see that now in sport we're seeing it definitely in retail and that's why mm. you know going back to the 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 china aspect is that that collection of data is really you know the the, the divisive in, in terms of you know decisive sorry in terms of how well that brand performs long term the fact that you can collect mm. all this fan data create a better experience then you know it is ultimately so much better for a sponsor because you know you can yeah, yeah. You create more engagement you can create more repeat custom and so on so i think with that in mind i'd like to bring that round to our last subject which is esports okay. because this is you know it we sit here in Asia and esports is just blowing up as it is in the rest of the world. You know, the numbers look very good. We're seeing a lot of sponsorship pour into this. And uh, there's so many questions I want to ask you about this, Matt. And uh, one of the questions is, is, you know, about, well, that esports has kind of been, you know, even if we take something like live streaming, live streaming for sport, analog world sport, if you like, offline is difficult right because there's mm. you know there's technology yeah. the, the stadiums aren't built for live streaming and then you have rights issues and so on yet esports it's all built for and around that sort of end game that experience that we're trying to create so tell us a little bit about how you've sort of been introduced to the world of esports in f1 <coughs> and, and you know your, what you've learned in that process yeah i mean i'm like everyone else i'm kind of new to this whole esports world you know i didn't know too much about it before i joined um f1 it, we had a, we'd often at sky sports we'd we'd shown a few uh, yeah a few programs here and there and i remember being with colleagues going maybe it's just my age but i don't get it <laughs> it's like <laughs> watching people play video games it's, it's not a sport but yeah you see then you see the numbers and the, the amount of people who 
uh, you know, that, that opportunity to hit that younger audience and you go actually this, you know, this, there's something in this and you know, there's talk of the IOC of including mm. it in the Olympics and um, but you know F1 we, uh, we, we, we've got a guy called Julian Tan who manages our esport sort of business um, um, and he uh, he's literally devised I think with a sort of very small team of a couple of people um, two seasons now of, of esports series at, at F1 um, the, there was the inaugural one last year, um, which uh, where the final took place at the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix, mm. um, and then this year actually it was much more focused around um, the Gfinity Arena in London, where um, they had a draft, um, and then I think they've had three rounds and then a final. Um, I, I've been to, I went to one of them this year, and I went to last year's one as well. So could actually you, got to experience. Could you just, it uh, describe that experience? I mean. 66,000 players in those four rounds. What was it like for you observing that, having spent your life yeah. in offline sports, if you like? <laughs> it was, yeah, it was still kind of, I wouldn't necessarily, necessarily say I'm kind of the world's biggest fan still, but that's mainly, I think, just because I'm still trying to get my head around the, the whole kind of the setup of it. It was, it was fascinating being there. You know, it's kind of like being in a cinema and in some ways, you know, you've got these big screens and you can see these little guys in their pods at the front of the, um, of the stage. And, and um, yeah, it, it, but, but the, the thing that struck me was, you know, how real the, you look at this screen and it just looks so lifelike. Mm. You know, it, it's the, the graphics are amazing. I mean, obviously I'm, I'm in my 40s now, so you know, thinking back to the days when we were kids, and <laughs> so, so you'd play these kind of Commodore 64 games, and that's for oh, someone state of the art, uh, yeah, yeah, and like you know, moving on to Sega Mega Drive. <laughs> now, I mean, it's it, it, it's it's incredible, and and um, that that struck me really being there, the kind of quality of the the, the what the content looked like, and I, I think um, yeah, I, I still think there were a few. There, there, it was interesting being in the crowd actually, because there were a lot of um, people still trying to who were there out of curiosity so they, they'd heard a lot about mm. esports and they wanted to see what it was like firsthand so you see that the that knowledge that knowledge bank will grow as years go by and i think um yeah it's it's been um for us it's been great as i said i think we we, we reckon this year we've had about 4.4 million um people have watched the f1 esports series which um yeah, bearing in mind that that's practically all all digital mm. uh, and that's digital streams that's and for a series where we've where we haven't really marketed it or um that yeah we're, we're pleased with that number that's a, a, a good start and it's not far off in terms of some of the numbers of some of the bigger you know the fifa will eclipse everything but yeah i think we're, we're pretty happy with the the numbers initially and we think there's definitely i think this year and last year we're kind of testing beds to sort of see is it something in the long term that's going to work for us and then when we look at we look at the numbers that we've had from kind of very little marketing plus the profile of our fans where we're getting you know 80 percent under 35s mm. um and also we're getting uh fans in those markets when we look at the kind of country where the, a lot of those fans are watching from like you say china and the us are, 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 are higher up compared to their kind of traditional tv audience so it shows that the markets that we care in terms of growing our fan base in china and us those markets are are performing really well for esports so we know that it's something that we need to do and we need to do bigger and better as each year goes by so expect um i haven't heard next year's plans yet but i've i've, I've heard in the grapevine they're going to be even bigger yeah it, it's exciting and it's also a bit of an unknown 
territory as well, isn't it? I mm. mean, we're, we're seeing the professionalization of esports. Uh, you know, we can talk a bit about that as well. The, the, the whole idea of what esports is for a franchise or any license holder, I mean, if you, whether it's F1 or IOC or UCI or FIFA, mm. what, what does it mean to these brand owners? Does it mean, is, is esports just another channel which they can monetize or does it, have some major crossover like would it then provide the onboarding for you know the uh, you know the offlining the the, the banner <coughs> f1 or the banner ioc or the banner olympics mm. for example it's like yeah. a feeder into that how, how do how, how will we be i know now is early days and we're still working it out but in the future how do you see that working mm. well i think we tried last year with the final being in abu dhabi so it was kind of combined in with the race weekend so it's kind of go, we well, you know these are two, although they're kind of one's online, one's offline, but they're both taking place on the same weekend. And um, I mean, the other thing that I think we, which we, which what happened this year was we didn't have every F1 team involved. I think we have most of them, but now next year, I think we're going to probably going to have every team. So if we're making it kind of more like, you know, like if, if the Ferraris of this world are getting involved as well, that's just going to grow the sport mm. exponentially. Um, but we need to kind of we need to make sure it's not that if, if we want to use it as an onboarding for the for the actual sport, we need to make sure that um, we, we kind of use this opportunity and, and, and think about how we speak to these young people who we may have on board for esports. But there's no proof yet that those people are going to become an F1 fan in the future. Mm. Who knows? It's, it's a it's a really interesting question that you get all the time. Well, will these guys be the next set of fans? But are they just gaming fans or, or mm. are they sports fans who we can then convert? But we need to work out as a business, what do we need to do to convert these guys to be an F1 fan? And, 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 and I think that's the kind of million dollar question to be honest. I'm not yeah. sure we've necessarily got the answer yet or the proof that, that, it would work even if we had the answer. It's um, early days, yeah. I mean, you mentioned some interesting, like the the Olympics, for example. I mean, here in yeah. Southeast Asia, the Southeast Asian Games now will feature esports, e so, which yeah. is the equivalent wow. to Commonwealth Games, for example. So, mm. I think we're just at those early stages that the professionalization of esports. We're starting to see teams. Mm. We're starting to see yeah. managers and psychologists. And yeah. I mean, uh, we we've just Madness. started a, an esports show here in our studio and. I was interested to hear them talking. They talk about the gamers as athletes. So, you know, with, yeah. with no sort of sense of irony on their face, you know, when they, they say he's an athlete or I'm an athlete, and an athlete is somebody who sits in front of the computer and plays 16 hours a day. And it was yeah. like, you know, uh, no sense of irony, but you, you understand that for them, it's as, uh, you know, as respected a sport as, you know, offline FIFA or mm. offline F1 or whatever it might be. So, the fact that the people come in now and professionalize that with the sponsorship money as well, it's, it's you know, turning a cottage industry into a bona fide sport. So, you know, I think what you're doing will only sort of amplify that and, yeah. you know, help that sort of connection between brands and, you know, those communities as well. So well, it's also, there's also, I guess, that F1's an interesting sport and that you don't, you can't ever do it yourself. You know, you, you, only 20 people in the world get to be an F1 driver, but everyone can go out and play football in the field. And esports is, like, in some ways, that link between the doing it yourself aspects, I think, mm. and becoming an F1 driver. So anyone can go and play an F1 video game that looks quite lifelike and it's quite real to life. Um, but yeah, before we haven't really had that link, it's been literally either you're 
one of the 20 people in the world who are lucky enough and probably rich enough to be able to afford to buy a seat in F1 or you're, um, or you're not. You know, now this provides us with that link between the two worlds. Mm. Absolutely. This is exciting times. A tough question, a bit of an ambush for you, but does the Olympics, for example, need esports? What's your thoughts on that? Something like a, <laughs> I mean, to, to, to stay relevant to the, because you, you spent time interacting with younger consumers. You know the challenges, yeah. you have the data, you have the insights, you've seen them in the esports world behaving, interacting with their teams and so on, cheering them on. Long term, is that a reality? Because uh, I'm sure purists will just be yeah. up in arms. Well, you're, you're speaking to a uh, an Olympic kind of aficionado as well. That's, that's kind of my main. <laughs> I've, that's I've been to the last five. I've been to the last <laughs> five Olympics as as a fan, and I've uh, so I'm yeah I'm, I'm I'm I love I love my games, but I um yeah I'm I'm personally jury's out, but commercially I can see why it would make sense. Mm. Um, you know, if it, like the Olympic brand, like like all brands, is is suffering in terms of aging audiences and um, how do they kind of become relevant in this kind of digital age? And it it would give them that perfect outlet. I mean, as a purist, I'm not gonna like like I said before around those kind of avid kind of F1 fans. I'm never gonna stop watching just because of the inclusion of a sport that I don't like. You know, it's it, it's, it's like Greco Roman wrestling. I've never watched that in my life at the Olympics, but I'm an Olympic fan. You know, I. I stick to the sports I love, so I think I think in terms of upsetting the purists, that's that's not going to have a huge impact. They're not going to not watch anything because of a sport they don't like, is included. Um, if it replaces one of the marquee sports, then that's a different story. But I very doubt it would. You know, you're not going to lose the the athletics or swimming or mm. uh, or cycling or whatever from the games. But um, yeah, I commercially I, I think it would make a lot of sense for um, the IOC to 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 look down that route because. You know, you look at some of the other sports that they've, that they've, you know, the sports that like add in football and try and increase football, football's sort of profile in the Olympics and women's football. You know, that's very much a ploy to try and get that more that younger audience mm. uh, as well. So there's a, you know, they're, they're definitely thinking about it. But and I think esports could be an easy one for them. But yeah, that's uh, I'll leave that one up to the IOC. It's been an interesting conversation. Absolutely. Well, it's a it's a great point to end on as well. And and. Yeah, I mean, we don't know. I mean, with all fairness, we don't know, do we? And we'll only ever know every four years and get a slight you know, improvement and ability to yeah. look back on where we are. But we're certainly heading in the right direction and exciting area as well, not just in terms of esports, but in the whole sort of you know application of data in terms of improving fan experiences. I think, you know, we'll look back on 20 years time and what we were doing and thinking, you know, it's just going to be core to what we do, whether it is in sport, in retail and anything we do, you know, and really what you're doing in that space, gathering that big data and t crunching that, turning it into stories as well. It's just absolutely essential for communicating change within organizations, communicating to shareholders, and even interacting with the fans as well and creating that dialogue with them. So, you know, uh, Matt, thank you so much for sharing your journey with us today. It's been fascinating really learned a lot as well and you know sharing your passion as well for all of that research it's been you know inspiring thank you thank you very much for your time it's been great excellent and before i let you go where do people find out more about you um you know um, if they do want to sort of jump on board learn a little bit about your story <laughs> and what's the best way linkedin is, probably is, linkedin i yeah. guess yeah feel free to add me on linkedin um i'm not really a big twitter twitter i'm not part of the twitter i don't tend to write very much on there so it's too busy probably 
yeah, probably LinkedIn is. Right. It's, yeah, we'll yeah, put all the details the in the show notes. I mean, if, ever, if anybody wants to reach out to you, then tell them that you've listened to this podcast interview. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, it's a good starting point, isn't it? That's Matt Roberts, everybody. Matt, thank you so much for your time. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at ATP.show.